Hello and welcome to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast, a show about life adversity, how to overcome it and transform your life. This is your host, Dr. Lidiana Garcia, a licensed psychologist in Los Angeles, California. And even though my hope is to deliver information that can be helpful for you to overcome adversity and transform your life, it is not meant to be a substitute for being diagnosed and treated by a licensed mental health, medical, and related professional. Season 1, Episode 15. Hi, everyone, and welcome. Today, we're going to have an amazing speaker. Her name is Hennessy's Gamez. Hennessy's is a bilingual licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. She's also a Gottman-trained couples therapist and an advocate for mental health. Her calling is to help clients create the life they desire and deserve to live. Who doesn't want that, right? Hennessy's is passionate about working with individuals struggling with addiction and their loved ones as well as individuals and couples with relationship distress. She fervently believes that relationships are powerful and can help us heal. So without any further ado, here we go. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another amazing episode of the Beyond Resilience Live. Today, I have the honor and privilege to present with you Hennessy Gamis. That's how you pronounce her? Yes. Hennessy Gamis. She is a licensed mental health therapist in Florida. And I'll let her explain a little bit more about herself. But um, thank you. Thank you for being here with us. Today is going to be an amazing episode. And without any further ado, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? What do you do? And all that good stuff. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And like you said, I'm a licensed mental health counselor in the state of Florida. I'm also a Gottman trained couples therapist. And my passion is working with individuals living with alcohol, substance abuse, or positive addictions and their families. Um, in the past, I've worked in residential treatment centers. I work for drug court and for the DUI program. And it's incredibly rewarding just to walk alongside others in their journey of healing and watch them create the life that they desire and deserve. Wow, that was like a big journey of working with a lot of different fields, but awesome. Yes. That sounds cool. Thank you. Thank you again. So how do you define trauma? I'm in the first season and I'm asking this question to everyone that's here. Mm -hmm. I know it can vary. So I want to know your opinion. Yeah. So I would say that it's any event that causes someone to change their perception of themselves, of those around them and of the world in a negative and very drastic way. Anything that would cause that to happen, I would consider it something that is traumatic. And typically with trauma, kind of a sign of it is that we continue to see these repetitive, unhealthy cycles that oftentimes are passed from generation to generation. And they're really, really hard to break. We've all endured some trauma if we've lived long enough. And, you know, sometimes we think about trauma as a veteran returning back from a war zone, or we think of trauma as living through a natural disaster or a terrorist attack or a shooting, because these are unfortunately some of the big things that we see on the news. But trauma can also be the death of a loved one, or it can be the death of a pet, or it can be a breakup or a divorce. It can be the fact of leaving your country and coming to a new country. All of that can create trauma. Now, although a lot of us have experienced these things, we might not think that they were traumatic for us. And we might be right. It might have not been a traumatic experience for us because maybe we felt, we perceived that we had resources and enough tools to cope and kind of make sense of these situations in a way that was fitting and was healthy for us. Yet other people may lack those resources, may lack those tools, and the impact of these 
situations might be a lot more detrimental to their functioning and to their ability to kind of interact in the world. Yeah, yeah, it depends on each person's perspective and experiences. Mm -hmm. I like that. Thank you. And how do you define, because today's episode is about substance use as a method to cope with unresolved trauma. So how do you define substance use? I think that's very important because in the general public, there's this idea that certain substance use is worse than others. So if I'm injecting heroin, it's worse than if I'm smoking pot, for example, or it maybe has to do with how much of it or how frequently I'm doing it. But it's actually more in-depth than that. And what I'm really looking at when I'm assessing someone is how is your use, regardless of what they're using, impacting different areas of their life. So someone, an individual that is struggling with substance use, usually struggles to limit or to be intentional about how much they use or how often they use. So for example, it might start with, you know, coworkers are deciding to go to happy hour. And so they say, well, you know, I'm going to go and just have two glasses of wine in happy hour. And then I'm going to go home and that's it, right? And instead of being just two glasses of wine in happy hour, it ends up they, they might just have the two glasses of wine at happy hour, but then they go home and they have three bottles of wine. And that's it, right? So they're not able to contain themselves even to what their intent is, right? The intent might not always be to get drunk, but they end up getting drunk anyways in the case of alcohol. Also, it's their ability to not be able to abstain from just not using or not drinking at all. Their family might be suggesting, well, just to prove it to yourself, try to stay clean for a month. Don't drink, don't use for a month. And they may have the intention, but they're not able to follow through with that. There's a lot of obsessive thoughts or cravings that really impair concentration. So there is this very overwhelming need to use or to drink that does not allow them to focus on their regular tasks, whether it's at work or it's in school or it's caring for family. They're not able to be fully present. There's also a development of tolerance. So whereas they needed a small amount at first to kind of feel that high or to feel kind of that buzz, they need double and sometimes even more than double to feel that initial effect. So they might seem very functional, yet they've had, you know, 10 beers, and you wouldn't know. They also experience withdrawal symptoms. So when they go elongated amount of time without drinking or using, they begin to feel physically sick. And a lot of times it looks like the flu. So they may be having cold sweats, they might be having, you know, they might be shaking, they may be having fever, stomach problems, a lot of body pain, headache, a lot of what the flu would look like. And we have to be careful with withdrawal symptoms because at times they can be deadly, especially for people that are drinking alcohol or using benzos are, can be deadly. The detox process can be deadly because your body has to kind of acclimate to not having those chemicals in your body. And so in that process of where your body is trying to acclimate and be like, okay, you're not giving me enough of that. I need to start producing it myself. There is a lack of it. And that can really create problems, heart problems and respiratory problems that can be fatal. Also, we want to see socially what's going on and relationally. So if they're neglecting their obligations with their families, their obligations in school, their obligations at work, if they're not engaging in hobbies anymore and things that, you know, were important to them that they feel passionate about, that would also be a sign that's something that I would be asking questions for. If they're using this fight physical or mental health conditions, that would also be a sign. So say that they have, for example, high blood pressure and they're doing cocaine, 
which accelerates your heart. It's a stimulant. So that would not go hand in hand with high blood pressure. But if knowing that you have a high blood pressure condition, you decide to continue to do cocaine, that would be, again, a sign that you know that there's a health condition that would be exacerbated by you continuing to use and you're continuing to use. Same thing would happen with any mental health condition, like anxiety, depression, PTSD, anything like that. They're also using despite relational issues. So a lot of times as the disease progresses, they're having problems with parents, they're having problems with siblings, they're having problems with significant others, with their children, with different people, friends, different people in their lives who are noticing these changes and are trying to let them know that there's an issue happening, that they need help, but they're not in a place where they're willing to see that or willing to take a step in the direction of healing just yet. So a lot of times people begin to cut them off, relationships unfortunately get strained. And there's also legal consequences, you know, drinking and driving or driving under the influence of anything else, or even depending on certain people's jobs, it can be, you know, a felony to be under the influence if, for example, you're a nurse, right? And so these things, this begins to happen, continues to happen despite legal consequences, also putting yourself, putting other people in physical danger, and still continuing to drink or get high, knowing that there's definitely a situation that would be dangerous. Yeah, that's like a very complete, broad picture. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. In terms of how, because people might go like, well, I have here a drink or a there, if I'm stressed. But how would you say it's more as a way to cope with unresolved trauma? Yeah. So I think that 99.9% of people that are struggling with some form of substance use have unresolved trauma going on. They might not be aware of it because, again, we generally think of trauma as natural disasters, shootings, big things like that, right? And we don't think of trauma as childhood emotional neglect. We don't think of trauma as a divorce or a separation. We don't think of trauma as the death of someone. So we don't think of it as things that can be traumatic. So probably if you went and asked someone, they might say, oh, no, I don't have any trauma. But it's a way that they're defining trauma, if that makes sense. It becomes a way of self-medicating, finding kind of an exit or a way to numb the overwhelming feelings that come along with unresolved trauma. A lot of times these are things that they've never really talked about. I don't mean therapy, but I mean anyone in their life. They haven't really expressed and processed with anyone. And if they've tried, they haven't been allowed. It's been, it has not been received well. So they haven't had that opportunity. So unfortunately, we need to address the trauma if we want someone to stay in recovery. The unfortunate part is that that's where our system often fails um, clients. And so when clients are going to treatment centers, you're not there long enough, unfortunately, to really be able to delve into the trauma, to really be able to understand how, you know, being neglected emotionally as a child has negatively impacted your ability to deal with your own emotions, to connect with other people's relationships, you get a lot of anxiety, don't feel comfortable in your skin, and then you feel like you need to use to feel more comfortable. You feel like using is important so that you can deal with day-to-day stressors, day-to-day frustrations, issues, typical issues that come up in relationships with other people. But again, to be able to delve into that, you need to have time. And again, that's where the system fails, is that people typically go to treatment centers for 28 to 90 days at most, and that's not enough time to really get in there with 
with a trauma. So what happens is that we have this revolving door. People go to treatment, complete treatment, stay clean for maybe a few months, eventually relapse because, again, that trauma is not being resolved and come back into treatment. It just becomes this revolving door. The piece that I wanted to ask Piggy back on that is, because there are some centers that are trying mm-hmm. within those 30 days or 90 days to address the trauma. Mm-hmm. But what do you think of that? Like, I have my opinion, but I want to hear yours. You know, I think it's really difficult. And it's a client by client situation. It depends on how long a client has been using. A lot of times there's more trauma that comes with the use. So there might be that initial trauma that they began to self-medicate for. But then part of using and part of that lifestyle brings in itself more trauma, right? And so I think it's hard to really be able to get into all of that in 28 or 30 days. Maybe with 90 days, it's something that's more possible, but it can be really difficult to get to that so early on. We also have to take into account that when clients get into treatment, they're not always excited to be there. You know, they're not always like, yes, let's do the work. I want to be clean. Let's do this. So you also have to be able to meet them where they're at. And it's going to be different for everyone else. You also have to, you know, while they're detoxing, even if they're out of detox and they're deemed to be medically clear, their body and their mind is still detoxing. They're still not sleeping well. They're still having gaps in their memories. They're still feeling sick sometimes. And so this also gets in the way of their mood and their ability to cope. I mean, think about it. I know that when I don't sleep well and I don't feel well, I get moody and I am more irritable and, you know, I don't want to talk about certain things. And so you have to kind of take all of those things into account. I think it's a good thing that they're trying to address trauma more. I think it's a step in the right direction. But we also have to be realistic that there's a lot of components that go into it and it's not cookie cutter. Everybody is different. Yeah. What are some of your go-to techniques to help address trauma and substance abuse? So it really depends on the client and the setting. When I was working in a residential treatment center, my focus was on substance abuse first because of the time constraints and also because of the severity of their use. So I would really address your motivation for change. Like I said, not everyone is super excited to be in treatment when they get to treatment. Some of them have some insight. Some of them think everybody in their family is wrong and they're right. So it's really evaluating where they're at in their progress of change and kind of meeting them there, helping them identify triggers for use. And a lot of times your trigger for use will be triggers related to their trauma. There will be an overlap there. Not all of them, but there definitely be an overlap there. So helping them address these and kind of identify if these are some triggers that can be avoided. And if not, how can they address them, kind of create a plan for when they do have to face these triggers, you know, and for some people, triggers might be like driving by a specific neighborhood, they might have to drive to that neighborhood to get to work. And so it's not necessarily something that they can avoid, they'll eventually have to face that and they'll need to have a plan. Also identifying people, places and things that they need to modify or maybe completely cut off of their life to prevent relapsing and to help them There might be some toxic friendships or to some toxic relationships in their life that might need very strict boundaries or might need to be cut off completely if they really want to be able to stay clean and be able to heal. Also teaching them, again, coping skills for distress. 
just how to manage day-to-day frustrations, but also how to manage flashbacks and how to manage, you know, nightmares. And that sense of something bad is going to happen at any moment, that kind of hypervigilance, just kind of giving them tools so that they can manage that. And I think that's really important, even before they do the trauma work, is for them to have some of those skills so that they can, you know, ground themselves and be mindful in, in that process. Communication skills are also very important. When you've been using for a while, you're not doing a lot of communicating. And when you're communicating, it's not the healthiest. So really teaching them communication skills, helping them develop a support system. I really believe that you can heal by yourself. You need to heal with others. And that might be a support group. That might be friends. That might be family. That looks different for different people. There's no right or wrong, but you need people in your life that have your back. And so really helping them develop a support system, reconnect with family, a lot of psychoeducation for them and for their families, whether it's parents, spouses, adult children, whatever that looks like, just providing a lot of education of what the process looks like and emphasizing the importance that they need to continue treatment at an outpatient level. And in that outpatient level, they definitely need to get into the trauma and also address the family component. And I say family, but it can be a friend. You know, if they don't have, they're not in contact with anyone in their family, anyone in their family wants to know about them. It can be their best friend. Like they can be the one coming to therapy and doing the process with them. Now in private practice, it's a little bit different. Sometimes I will transfer people to residential because they need that level of care that I can't provide in a private practice setting. But if that's not the case, then I often focus, again, on the coping skills. We do get more into the trauma I also, again, assess your motivation for change because just because they're coming into private practice doesn't mean that they are motivated to change or that they have the insight. So I definitely assess for that. We work on the coping skills. When they've got in more of a grasp of the coping skills, we begin to try to reduce the substance use. So for example, for someone that maybe is getting drunk every day, we try to be, well, maybe we can get drunk every other day and let's see, let's see how that goes and let's see what helps us not get drunk on the days that we're not supposed to get drunk, Right. Now, you can do that with things like alcohol. You can't do that with things like heroin, for example. I was going to ask about that because there's this big two, usually like opposite ideas Uh of abstinence or harm reduction. So you're Uh talking more on the harm reduction. That's my understanding. You know, the way that I say it to clients is that I don't know if they're ever going to be able to use again. And when I'm having this conversation, it's usually about alcohol or is usually about marijuana. It's not about something deadly like heroin. With heroin, I am definitely more on the abstinence side. With things with marijuana, cocaine, or alcohol, which are not, they can be deadly, but you don't necessarily overdose on them as frequently as you would with things like heroin, fentanyl, and and other opiates, we start from a harm reduction. And then I think for some of them, they know that they can't use again. And they kind of know that for themselves. They know that if they ever used again, it would get out of control. But I don't even take it there yet with them because it can be very overwhelming. You know, I mean, I love guava. I think guava is the best. And if someone ever told me you can never in your life ever have anything that contained guava, I would feel very, very, very overwhelmed and very sad. And I would cry. So that's just guava. That's not, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah, that's not a drug of any sort. So I try to start from a harm reduction. I honestly tell them, I don't know. Everyone is wired differently. Maybe if we work through the trauma, you are able to go to a place where you can drink socially or you can smoke socially and be in control of your use. 
that may happen that may not happen. We would have to, you know, kind of address that when we get to that point. But if we're in day one of therapy, you're very far away from that point anyways. Right. Right. But I like this perspective because usually I see more of those two opposite perspectives and not even taking in consideration the type of drug or type of use. Yeah. And I think, like you said, they're very polar opposites. But I think the type of drug makes a big difference. We're having more research on what the different drugs do to the brain. We know with things like crystal meth and heroin, addiction happens almost instantaneously. And it's not really like this drawn out process. Now, we know that someone can drink all of their lives and then develop an alcohol problem when they hit middle age. But yet they've been drinking for 20 years and been perfectly fine. So these are things that are different. And I think that we need to begin to take into consideration that not all substances and not all drugs are the same. Their impact is different. And so the recovery can look different. Also, people are different. Yeah, I love this perspective of more of an individual. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the insights or new meanings that people have achieved after doing the work, after kind of processing the trauma and managing their substance? Yeah, I think that they really realize how much they've lost with their substance use. And not just financially, but just relationship-wise, opportunities, things that they could have been doing that they didn't do. And although this sounds negative, I think it's really important. Because for you to be able to be willing to give up something that you've enjoyed or that has been a big part of your life, even if you haven't enjoyed it all the time, but has been a very big part of your life, you have to know why you're giving it up, right? And so if you want some of these opportunities back in your life, if you want to be able to have stable relationships, be at a stable place financially, be able to do other things that you're passionate about, you need to know and you need to have it very clear that if you continue to use in the way that you've been using, you're not going to achieve these things. Also, they learn to take responsibility for their role in situations. And one thing that I, you know, that I always say to my clients is you're not at fault for what happened to you, whatever traumatic event happened to you. You didn't choose that. You, you had no control over that. But we do have control over how we react afterwards about how it impacts our lives and whether we decide to do the work and recover or not. That is definitely our responsibility. And so they learn to take that ownership. They learn to forgive themselves and learn to love themselves again, but also forgive other people around them. They gain healthier relationships. They no longer feel like they're being held hostage by their substance of choice. And they feel confident in their ability to really achieve their highest potential. And I think it's really incredibly empowering to see yourself kind of construct piece by piece the life that you never thought you could have. But piece by piece kind of begin to do that for yourself is very empowering and really very healing in its own way. Yeah, I think all these new different perspectives that people can gain afterward, because there's a lot of people that have struggled with substance mm-hmm. and then later on go into creating amazing lives. Absolutely. It's definitely not impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of any resources or any recommendations that are your favorites working with trauma mm-hmm. and or substance? So one of the things that I always tell my clients is that if they want to go to a trauma specialist that maybe does EMDR or does brain spotting or a lot of the new more brain-based strategies to deal with trauma, we can all work together. 
And so I think that's something that's important for clients to know is that you don't necessarily just need one person on your team, but you might need multiple people on your team. You might at one point need a nutritionist on your team because maybe part of your use was related to not wanting to gain weight. And so now that you're not using, you might be putting on some more pounds and it might be healthy pounds, but you're still going to feel conflicted about that. And so looking at yourself in the mirror every day might be a really big trigger for you. So you might need a nutritionist on your plate as well. You, you might need a doctor, you might need a psychiatrist, you might need different people kind of on your team. And so that's something that I always kind of emphasize to clients, it's okay, you don't just need me, you might need more people, and we can all work together to provide you with comprehensive treatment. So I, that's definitely something that I would suggest for people in outpatient or in private practice settings, even in residential settings. If you're looking for a residential setting for yourself or for a loved one, See if they have trauma specialists on board. See if they have a psychiatrist that's on staff. Make sure that they have nurses and doctors, that they have family therapists that will do family therapy, couples therapy as well. And that's where, you know, it becomes complicated because the financial aspect plays a big role on that. And so some people that might not have insurance and might not be able to pay out of pocket would have to go to community agencies and community treatment centers that might not have as much flexibility as to, you know, the, the staff that they have and how, how diverse the staff is. So that's where it becomes a little bit complicated. And, and I, that's something that I definitely understand. With insurances, you can ask your insurance company for a list of treatment centers that are covered. And then you call them, kind of interview them, ask them questions. If you're able to tour them, get a feel for it, because you want to make sure that you're going to the right place and that it's going to be the right experience for you. And if it's outpatient, then you can definitely, you know, again, through Psychology Today, Latinx Therapy, the directory, and a lot of other directories out there, as well as just a Google search search in your area, you can find therapists that are specialized in addiction, but also kind of have a background in family systems and in trauma, because they all come together. You don't have to have one therapist, you can have multiple therapists if needed. But again, when finances become a problem, you want to try to make sure that you find a therapist that maybe can cover more of those areas. And then support groups are really important because, again, you can't do it alone and your therapist won't be with you 24-7. So you need, you need to create kind of that community that supports you in your process of healing. So I always suggest Alcoholic Anonymous or Narcotic Anonymous because they're the most common. They're pretty much everywhere in the United States and even abroad. If you go on a cruise ship, you're going to have an AA meeting as well. And that's very easy. You can do a Google search of AA or NA in your area with your zip code and a ton of them will come up. They also have more specific ones. So they have like cocaine use anonymous. They have sexual addiction anonymous. I think it, I think I said it wrong, but something like that. Uh, they have for more of the specific ones as well. But those are not as common as the standard AA. Or an A, regardless, any of them would be helpful in again creating that community and doing part of that self work, but in a community base. Also, Al Anon and Alateen are great resources, which are also family of AA and NA. Al Anon is for family members or loved ones that have a loved one that's struggling with an addiction and really kind of helping them through their own recovery and their own healing because we know that addiction is a family disease it doesn't only impact the individual that's using. And so Al-Anon really provides that support for the families, understanding what the recovery process looks like, understanding why they continue to relapse, 
understanding sometimes the codependency that takes place as well. Alatina is essentially the same, but it's for teenagers. So this would be great for teenagers who may have a sibling that's struggling with substance use or a parent that's struggling with substance use. There's also Celebration Recovery. This one is a Christian-based support group, so it often comes out of churches, Christian churches. And the interesting thing about Celebration Recovery is that it's not limited to substance use. It's often open to people struggling with trauma, anxiety, depression, other mental health conditions as well. So it's a little bit more of a varied group. And then the other one that I really like is Smart Recovery. And that's more of the fully secular version of all of these. Like AA and NA are spiritual, but not necessarily attached to a specific religious belief. Celebration Recovery is more Christian-based. And then Smart Recovery is completely secular. They do things like REBT, CBT, and things that your therapist would basically do with you. They have a lot of resources online that you can just download and use. They have videos and then they have meetings as well. Okay. Thank you. And I'll add this in the show notes if we're all interested in getting at least the information. Mm -hmm. Any favorite books or movies that have inspired you to keep on doing this hard work? I am a poetry lover. And I think poetry is so powerful. It's probably one of the most powerful forms of art because I think it really captures the human experience in a very unique way. And I actually enjoy using poetry with clients. Because again, I think it just, it can resonate so well with it. That can be very cathartic. And so I really love The Prophet from Khalil Garbain. Milk and Honey and Sun and Her Flowers from Ruby Kapoor are just one of my favorites. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And how can the listeners follow you or contact you? Yeah. So for contact information, they can email me at genesis at southmiamipsych.com. Um, and so if they're in Florida and they're maybe interested in therapeutic services, that would be the best way to contact me. But they can also follow me on Instagram at the Miami Therapist and on Facebook as Genesis Gomez LMHC. Okay. And I'll put those here. Any last things you want to mention or any last thoughts? I think the most important thing to understand is that addiction is not a moral failing. It's really a symptom of something deeper that's going on. And again, that we can't heal by ourselves. We need to heal together. And the only way that we can achieve long-term recovery is by making you know, some radical lifestyle changes. Things cannot look the same. Nothing in our lives can look the same. If, they, if it looks the same, then we're bound to relapse. Yeah. Thank you again so much for all this insight on your work and all these recommendations. I know for the listeners, it will be really helpful. Thanks again. and Thank you for having me. Yeah. And have a great rest of your day, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Beyond Resilience Life podcast. I'm so happy to have you here. If you like this episode, please make sure to review it and comment on it and share it with your friends and family. Until next time.